So 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Well, thank you very much indeed, John, for that reading. And uh, let me add my good morning and welcome to Joe's. It's great to see you. Uh, I'm going to pray and um, I'm going to pray for Alex. Yeah, one of our number who is preaching away this morning. We're about to begin a, a short series of talks at St. Anne's Baptist Church. It's one of the ways we sort of serve our uh, friends in different uh, parts of the Northwest is by sending preachers out. And between now and Christmas, we've got three weeks that we're going to uh, help that little church down at St. Anne's uh, south end of Blackpool. And uh, Alex is uh, preaching there this morning. So let's pray for him and for them. And let's pray for ourselves as we turn to God's word. Peter says here, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing you speak. We pray for ourselves now as we turn back to this letter of 1 Peter. And we pray for our brothers and sisters at St. Anne's Baptist Church and for Alex as he brings the word to them this morning. We pray that you will be gracious to us in giving us your powerful word to challenge us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, and above all, to lift our eyes to the reality and the glory of the Lord Jesus as we await his return. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you may have seen uh, the slogan emblazoned usually on the uh, windscreen of a Land Rover or a rugged-looking off-road vehicle, or perhaps on the bumper sticker at the back, one life, live it. One life, live it. If you've never seen that slogan, then uh, keep your eyes open. It's, uh, it's a very common one. There's even a joke version of it, which I quite like, one wife, livid. <laughs> the point is clear. If you've only got one life, if you only live once, if life is short, then you'd better get out there and play hard. Now, I don't know why uh, middle-aged male Land Rover owners adopt that particular slogan, but I think it's not just the preserve of off-road enthusiasts. I think it captures the truth that many in our church live by, even if they don't state it so blatantly. Uh, I saw an old uh, advert for Xbox, uh, on YouTube recently. It was a, a bit of a shocking advert. It catches this idea perfectly. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. it. It features a baby being born in a maternity unit, complete with the screams of the mother in birth pains. 
And then the baby rockets out the window, and the advert, which lasts less than a minute, takes this baby flying naked backwards through the air like a missile. As the baby grows into a child, and then a teenager, and then a man, and then an old man, and then a very old man, and then lands with a crash in a gravestone and appears in a cloud of dust, disappears in a cloud of dust, all within the space of a minute. It was so shocking that apparently the advert was quickly banned, and I actually showed it to our, our trainees and to a couple of others, and we decided it was too shocking to show on a Sunday morning as well, although you can still find it on YouTube. And at the end of the advert, the dust settles, and then the caption comes on, Life is short, play hard, Xbox. Well, personally, it would make me want to give up playing Xbox altogether and go and get a four-wheel drive or something, but whatever your response, it is a very sobering image, isn't it? To actually condense a human life to such a short span, to see it in that unstoppable trajectory from birth to death and then oblivion, it reminds us, doesn't it, that life is short. You do only live once. There is some truth to that, isn't it? That you're born, you die, and game over. And if that is all the truth to life, then actually the Land Rover slogan makes perfect sense. One life, live it. If life really is like this, then you had better play hard. Work hard. Travel, see the world, fulfill your dreams, do whatever makes you happy, achieve your bucket list, and whatever you do, don't put up with unnecessary hardship or suffering. If that marriage is proving difficult and disappointing, leave it. If that job is unsatisfying, find another. If that commitment is too difficult to keep, give it up. If family life is denying you you time, then Get that you time back. If that friendship is draining, then find another friend. If that situation is painful, don't put up with it. Whatever you do, don't allow yourself to get sick or disadvantaged or inconvenienced for the sake of others. Or as another advert puts it, this year's M&S Christmas advert, I don't know if you've seen that yet, don't do anything you don't want to do. One life, live it. Life is short, so play hard. But what if none of that were true? What if there were a different story to life? What if real life, the life that God our Creator gives us, is not about me achieving my dreams, but is actually a call to give up my dreams for the good of others? What if real life is not about pursuing glory now and avoidance of suffering, but the acceptance of suffering now and the expectation of glory later? What if suffering and death are not the great failures that they appear to be, but the very reverse? And what if God's aim for us right now is not to make us happy, but to make us holy? Well, all of that can only be true if Jesus has risen from the dead. And this one event actually changes your perspective on life completely. It turns all of those things on their head the right way up. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. But before we do, I want to just give us a brief reminder of why Peter is writing this letter. He actually states his reason very clearly. If you just look over to chapter 5, verse 12, he gives us one of these purpose statements, which is very helpful in the New Testament letters. 5, verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering as Christians. And he wants them to not give up the Christian life, but to keep going to the end. He wants them to stand fast in the gospel, to hold on, not to allow their experience of suffering to make them wobble or give up entirely. 
But there is more to standing fast than simply battening down the hatches, circling the wagons, gritting our teeth and holding on for dear life until Jesus returns. As we have seen, the Christian life, the life lived together as God's community, is not a life lived in separation from the world or in fear of the world or denial of the world. It's a life lived in the midst of the world. It's a life lived with open eyes to the reality of things. In other words, Peter is not just on about the church's survival in a hostile world. He is on about the church's mission to a hostile world. As Gareth so helpfully reminded us, and wasn't it relief the the smoke alarms didn't go off, as Gareth reminded us, it is about standing fast and standing out at the same time. And this is the central thesis of the letter in 2, 11 to 12. Just look at it again with me. 2, 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Stand fast and stand out. And what that involves is the church seeing itself clearly as the countercultural community of God's people living in the light of the end, in the light of that day when God visits us. And if we grasp that, we will have a completely different view of life to those who miss the resurrection. Well, we come now to 4, 1 to 11, and you'll see in the, on the outline that this means two things. If we adopt this worldview, we will say no to those who say life is short, but we'll say yes to each other because the end is near. So two simple headings then. Firstly, say no to those who say life is short in one to six. Peter now comes to the crunch in terms of how we are to live this good life in the world. Verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, I wonder if you spotted a connection between those two verses and chapter 2, 11 and 12, which I just read. The good life that Peter is on about in chapter 2, verse 12, involves abstaining from sinful desires which here he calls evil human desires. But the connection I want you to notice is the language of warfare. I wonder if you spotted that. In 2.11, he says we are to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And now can you see the language in chapter 4, verse 1? He's now giving us the armament, the weaponry, to fight the war, very deliberately, a warfare language. In other words, he is now saying, here is how you fight the war against ongoing sin in the Christian life. And if you are a Christian this morning, if the Spirit of God has been at work in you at all, you should be on the edge of your seat as I say that. Because you will know how hard it is to fight that battle. You'll know if the Spirit of God has made you alive how much the sinful desires still rage inside you. And Peter is giving us here the weapon in that war, the weapon to fight the good fight. And so have a look at verse 1 carefully. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The great weapon in the war against sin is a choice of attitude. Peter has said a fair bit about Christ's suffering on the cross, hasn't he, in the letter. Uh, Just flip back and and let's refresh our memories. Uh, Verse 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 11, he said the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow are the whole focus of the Old Testament, the whole goal of the Old Testament. Then in 2, 21 to 25, just glance at that if you would, he has said that the suffering of Christ while trusting God on the cross is the pattern for the Christian life. 
And then in 3.18, which Joe reminded us right at the beginning, 3.18, Christ suffering on the cross, being put to death in the body, is the way Jesus has actually won victory over evil and brought salvation to those who embrace it. And so now come back to 4 verse 1. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. In other words, Peter is saying here, decide to adopt the attitude Jesus adopted in suffering on the cross. But why is this attitude the weapon in our war against sin? How does it work? Well, continue to read with me. Verse 1, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather the will of God. Now, I hope you did have your breakfast this morning, because this is one of those bits of 1 Peter that we, we do have to engage brain a little bit. What does he mean that he who has suffered in his body is done with sin? Is he saying that if you experience physical suffering, you will somehow eliminate sin from your life, kind of a purging effect? Or does he mean, as some have suggested, that suffering somehow atones for particular sin in our life? Or perhaps more realistically, is he speaking a bit like Paul in Romans 6 when he says the power of sin is broken in the believer's life because of your union with Christ? Well, I don't think it's any of those things. And I think we have to read on to work it out. Because you'll notice that verse 3 begins with the word for. And so just keep that question in mind as we continue. Verse 3, 4, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Now, in those two verses, Peter paints a devastating picture of life in the pagan society that surrounds his readers. In verse 3, there is a list of six terms which characterize the life that is ruled by human sinful desires. Do you see that? The first five describe an unrestrained abandonment to the bodily appetites of sex, food, and drink. And they do paint a, a striking resemblance to some parts of life in modern Western culture, don't they? You get concentrations of this behavior at certain times. Have you been in Lancaster Town Centre on a Friday night in Freshers Week? Have you been in Preston Town Centre any Friday night, for that matter? But it's more important to see that those behaviors are symptomatic of a worldview, a way of thinking that makes sense if you believe that death is the end. One life, live it. Don't do anything you don't want to do, and therefore abandon yourself to your bodily appetites of sex, food, and drink. Well, those are the first five phrases, but look at the sixth phrase in verse 3, because this is different. Detestable idolatry. This sixth phrase actually adds something very significant to our understanding. See, what, what do you think of when you see that word idolatry. Well, in, in Peter's day, it may have literally meant people bowing down to physical idols. As you wandered the streets in one of these towns in Asia Minor where Peter's readers live as exiles, you would have noticed the multiplicity of religions, of gods and worship, and this kind of profound tolerance with which that society embraced them all. The Rome was a truly polytheistic culture. It could cope with many gods and any gods. And so, in one sense, if these Christians wanted to get together and worship their Jesus God, that's fine, isn't it? It's just another option. Hey, we're a tolerant, liberal, inclusive, diverse society. That was the Greco-Roman world in the first century. 
And so if they are a tolerant, liberal, inclusive, diverse society, why are Peter's readers getting a hard time of it? Why are Christians being persecuted? Why are the little churches not being tolerated? Why does verse 4 read like the very opposite of liberalism and diversity? Why are these unbelievers dismayed, disappointed, even angry that Christians are choosing to exercise their freedom in this liberal culture, but in a way that they don't quite like? Well, because the lifestyle depicted in those first five words is connected to the sixth word, the idolatry. The lifestyle of the first five words is actually legitimated by the religious dimension of the sixth word. Now, let's think about what this means in Peter's culture, and then we'll think about what it means in our culture. In Peter's culture, it's fairly straightforward because the sexual orgies and feasting and drunkenness were, were actually tied together to the idolatry of the culture. I can't remember much from learning about the Romans in primary school, but I do remember two things, and I can, <clears throat> I can picture the little illustrated hit, history book. They, they made straight roads, and they ate so much that they would vomit. Remember, remember those two truths about the Romans? I don't know, you know if that's just stereotyping, but that's what came down to me from my primary school education. The Romans made straight roads, and they had excessive acts of eating and drinking at their religious festivals. And when those festivals and the behavior that is part of them is actually tied to what it means to be Roman, what it means to actually revere the state and salute the flag and submit to the emperor and be a legitimate member of this society, then can you see how if you abstain from those behaviors, then suddenly you cannot be tolerated. Do you see? And so while no one cares if Christians add Jesus to the plethora of gods, and no one cares if they do their funny little subculture churchy things, it's a different matter if the Christian worldview implicitly criticizes the worldview of the day. So you've got to understand the difference between being a subculture and a counterculture. There are many subcultures in the world and they're tolerated, aren't they? The Amish are a subculture in America. You know, they, they do their own thing, they live their own particular way. We must not be a subculture. The church is a counterculture. And the two things are very different. Well, that's what it meant in Roman times. To abstain from the feasting and the sexual orgies is not just a lifestyle decision, but it's a criticism of that polytheistic, idolatrous culture and society. Well, what about us? Well, of course, when any self-centered hedonistic lifestyle becomes ideologically attached to the actual values of the culture, you know, British values, what it means to be British, then you're asking for trouble when you abstain from it. But there's more, isn't there? Because in our culture, actually, we have not just legitimated those moral choices. In actual fact, I don't think orgies and wild drinking parties are the thing now, are they? Generations that are far too health conscious for that, and they don't have any money to spend on them anyway. Actually, the equivalent sin for us, I think, is more the identity obsession, isn't it? This idea that you must express yourself in the sexual realm particularly. The freedom to choose your sexuality, to actually choose your gender. That whole identity business captured under the pride movement, the absolute right to do and be whatever you like, that is all part of the worship of the God of self-expression. It's not just a lifestyle choice. It is part of the religion of our society. It is the God that we have fashioned as a society for its own worship. And the worship of that God 
legitimates the moral choices that we make. And if you dare to question those moral choices, you blaspheme the God. And so as Christians are finding, you do that, and you're in deep trouble. Now, come back then to verses 1 and 2, and I think all of that should now be clear. Christians who find themselves in a culture like this must decide whether they're going to fall in with the culture and worship the gods of the culture and avoid persecution or choose to follow Christ and suffer abuse as a result. So can you see how the abuse in verse 4 is not just a bunch of hedonistic students in Freshers' Week having a go at the one who doesn't go to the nightclub, although that's bad enough, that's hard enough. It's a society judging a subculture that has become a counterculture. It is society saying, how dare you criticize our gods by living this way? And so Christians must decide, are you going to fall in with the culture and avoid persecution, or are you going to follow Christ and receive abuse as a result? And so see how this makes sense of verse 1. If you choose obedience to Christ, knowing that you will suffer as a result, you are done with sin. You see? When a Christian who could avoid suffering by adopting the practices of the sinful culture refuses to join in with that culture, that is evident that he or she has decided that they are going to be on Jesus' side, not on sin's side. You are done with sin. And you're going to live instead for the will of God. Well, that's the hard part. We must choose to suffer with Christ or abandon ourselves to the culture. But now, the good news, verse 5. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. With that one line, Peter blows out of the water the whole worldview that says one life liveth. That there is no accountability, therefore eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says, no, that whole philosophy is not the truth. Land Rover drivers, peel it off your windscreens. Actually, there is something beyond death. There is accountability beyond death. And while we live in a universe where justice is not done now, it will be done in the end. Those who have persecuted Christians and seem to have got away with it have not got away with it. God has taken note and will hold them accountable. There will be vindication. Evil will not have the last word. The man-made gods of this world that we have fashioned to legitimate our own moral choices, God will actually put down on the last day, and the evil of all of that will be exposed for what it is. And now look at verse 6, then, in this context. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. At first sight, this sounds similar to 3.19, where you may remember Peter spoke of Jesus preaching to the spirits in the time of Noah, but it's quite different. For a start, notice it's people who are now dead, not rebellious evil spirits. And notice it's very clearly the gospel that is preached to them while they were alive. It's an opportunity for forgiveness, not simply a message of victory announced. So there's no sense that this is talking about evangelism after death or a second chance of anything of that nature. So what is Peter saying in verse 6? Well, I think Peter is simply saying that if you have believed the gospel then death is not the failure it first appears. If you have believed the gospel, then death is not the failure it first appears. You see, if you believe the one life live it doctrine, 
if you have no concept of the judgment of God after death, then you may look at the Christian life and think, what a failure, what a waste. This grim, joyless life, when you say no to self, when you put down your self-expression, what is the point? Because you're going to land in that Xbox gravestone trajectory, aren't you? So what is to be gained by all this abstinence? Why are you putting up with this persecution? Why not just throw yourself into this pool of dissipation and be done with? Or why not work through your bucket list? Embrace those sinful desires. Recognize who you are and embrace it. But Peter wants us to tune into a different narrative, a different story. He says, remember, the reason you heard the gospel in the first place, the reason there is a gospel, is to prepare you for judgment. It's to actually free you from sin and self and bring you to life beyond the grave. Remember, this is what he was on about in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The gospel that brings us into a living hope, an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you because Jesus has risen. In other words, the decision to reject the world's ways and fight sin and live for God's will is the most sensible decision you can possibly make. It is the way of blessing. That's the whole point of the gospel, to prepare us for eternity. Well, what does all this mean for us in practice on a Monday morning? Well, I wonder if you just skim over verses 1 to 6 and just notice with me that there is only one imperative, one command verb in this paragraph. It's back in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. And I think this is very simple and very powerful. The take-home is that we get to choose our attitude in suffering. It's a matter of choice. It's a matter of the will. See, think about it. When Christians suffer persecution, all kinds of things get taken away, don't they? Depending on how severe the persecution is, your dignity might be taken away. Your reputation might be taken away. Your, your peace of mind might be taken away. Your property might be taken away. Even your life might be taken away. But there's one thing that no one can take away in any circumstances, and that is the freedom to choose the attitude with which you respond to those things. And I think this is a lesson that's applicable to all sorts of things. You see it all through the Bible. We are told to act according to the will of God rather than the emotion that we feel. You can, says the prophet Habakkuk, choose to be joyful in affliction. Habakkuk 3.17, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no crop, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. You can choose not to fear. Isaiah 41 verse 10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. You can choose to be content. Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can choose not to be anxious. Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You can choose, Peter says, not to worry. Luke 12, 22, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear, for your Father knows you need them. And we've seen this all the way through 1 Peter, haven't we? Slaves can choose to submit to their masters. Wives can choose to submit in a difficult marriage. You can choose not to be mastered by sin. We get to choose our attitude. And no one can take that away. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist who spent years in Nazi concentration camps. And he said in those camps he observed 
that while man can be deprived of every freedom, he cannot be deprived of the freedom to choose his attitude. That's the one thing no one can ever take away. And that's what Peter is saying in verse 1. When we suffer, we get to choose to suffer like Jesus. That is our freedom and our privilege. So there's the first thing. Say no to those who say life is short. We have a better story. We have a different story because Jesus is risen. But that's not all Peter has to say on this whole topic. So far he has rebutted one worldview. But what is going to positively replace that worldview? Well, in the second part we see that although we say no to those who say life is short, at the same time, we say yes to each other because the end is near. Have a look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Now, this is a a logical move because Peter has just been speaking about judgment in verse 5, and so now he talks more generally about the end of all things in verse 7. The surprise, though, might be that he confidently asserts that it's near. And you might think, well, isn't this the view of crackpots and extremists? You know, the the bearded old man with a glazed look in his eye and the sandwich board that you might see on the street corner, the end is nigh, repent. Or you might think, well, isn't Peter proved wrong by history? 2,000 years on and we're still waiting. Jesus has not returned The end doesn't seem any nearer than it did then. Has he got it wrong? But that is to misunderstand what he means by the end. See, when we hear the word end, we tend to think it means termination or oblivion. But the end in the Bible is is more to do with the goal or the fulfillment. So the end of all things is not when the world is kind of destroyed into oblivion. It is actually the time when the created world comes to life. It is the time when the created order, created by God, fallen into sin, is redeemed and restored and renewed. And so why does he say the end is near? The end is near because Jesus has risen. And Jesus' resurrection has begun the end already. This side of the cross, we are living in the last days. The nearness of the end, therefore, is is not a chronological thing. It's a theological thing. The nearness of the end is not to do with how many years or centuries until Jesus returns. It's the fact that the next thing that's going to happen is that Jesus will return. That is the final stage of the salvation plan. In other words, it's the nature of the time, not the length of the time that Peter is on about. Remember the last thing Peter said at the end of chapter 3 was that Jesus has conquered evil. And verse 22, he is now at God's right hand with all things subject to him. In other words, Jesus has made this great journey up. Now what does that mean? It means he's going to make a great journey down. Think of it like a tennis ball. You throw a tennis ball into the air. You might get that tennis ball really, really high. And there's this moment of pause, isn't there? But you know the tennis ball is going to come down. And Jesus' journey up is preparing the world for his journey down, his journey down in judgment and rule. And so what Peter is saying is when he says the end is near, he's saying we are are living in this little momentary pause between the ascension of Jesus and his return. If you want to see more on this, read 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3. He says there's this little window of time. And God is holding back that return so more people can be saved. In other words, we're living in AD while the world is living BC. What is the way of living that is appropriate to the last days? Hoarding supplies in the basement for that apocalyptic cataclysm? Standing on the streets with a sandwich board? No. The answer is verses 7 to 11. And it looks suspiciously like an ordinary local church to me. There are three parts to it. Firstly, prayer. 
Secondly, love. And thirdly, service. This is how we are to live in the last days. Firstly, verse 7. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. This clear-mindedness, literally sober-mindedness, is in clear contrast to the drunken debauchery in verse 3, which is seeking to maximize pleasure before death. But it's deeper than literal sobriety. It's that clarity of mind that comes when you rightly understand the times. It is to grasp the fact that the resurrection of Jesus has ushered in the last days, and we are now living in a time of urgency. The tennis ball is about to fall. And so what are we going to do? Well, instead of heading to the bar or ticking off the next thing on the bucket list, we're making a beeline for the prayer meeting. To grasp the last days is to pray urgently for God's help in the mission. Sober-minded. Doesn't mean not drinking. It does mean that. But it means much more than that. It means you go to the prayer meeting. It's remarkable, isn't it? I was at a pastor's conference the other week and I was talking to somebody who was bemoaning the fact that very, very few people came to the prayer meeting in their church. I think it was a church of 207 people at the prayer meeting or something like that, and I thought that was a terrible thing. How can you have a church where the prayer meeting is not the priority? How can you believe that we're in the last days if the prayer meeting is not the priority? You know, let's make sure that that never is true for us that the prayer meeting is the main thing that we go to, the priority that we go to, because the end is near. That's the first thing. Pray. The second thing, verse 8, is to love each other. But look at it. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he continues the sentence, offering hospitality to one another without grumbling. The command to love is above all which means it's the key thing we are to do as the end draws near, and probably something that we will find easy to neglect. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where the gospel works out in our lives. Because as we've seen, that gospel teaches us the basic ethic of other person-centeredness. Not my good at your expense, but your good at my expense. And the deeply here does not refer to emotional intensity. But it's the same phrase used in 1 verse 22, which we saw meant to love at full stretch. So this is not so much an act of the emotion. It's not about how you feel about people. It's about an act of the will. It's a decision. A commitment to love people in the church family, not because they're easy to love, or even likable, but because they're not. Because this is how God loved you on the cross. Did you think that when Jesus was dying for you on the cross, he had this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling about you? Of course not. But he loved you. He made that decision. He loved you at full stretch. And that is how we are to love each other. Which is why this persistent love covers a multitude of sins. That does not mean that sins are overlooked or treated lightly or even less atoned for. But that the decision to love, to love others as we have been loved by God, breaks the cycle that sin can cause in relationships. And remember the context. That this is a church under pressure from the world. It's easy to imagine Christians who are being persecuted by the world being judged by others in church. I don't know if when I put those eight or nine faces up last week of people who have been sort of cancelled in our culture, I can imagine some of us thinking, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. That was a bit foolish, putting, putting that on Twitter. I wouldn't have done that. Not wise to act like that. And I can imagine, can't you, when some people are being persecuted in church, some people are kind of suffering in different ways, the temptation will be to judge them 
and say, well, I'm not sure that was very wise. And to distance yourself from those who are having a hard time in the world, am I right? Is that what's going on? But I think Peter is saying, actually, this commitment is so vital that we actually act together. We stand together in the face of the world's hostility. This is so vital to the church's mission. So this love is a very practical reality, a decision to stand together in the face of the world's hostility. And the grammar makes it clear that offering hospitality is an aspect of that love too. We often think of hospitality as entertaining friends, don't we? But in the Bible, hospitality is more to do with sharing your roof with strangers, with people in need. Perhaps in this context, even hosting the church gathering in the absence of purpose-built buildings and therefore welcoming all kinds of people and strangers and their children into your home. And why does this matter? Why does hospitality matter? Because God has been hospitable to us, that's why. The word hospitality in the Greek is, is xenophilia. So you've heard of xenophobia, you know, the, the, the hatred of strangers. Well, xenophilia is the love of strangers. And so hospitality is the way God has treated us. He's, he's loved us. He's brought us into his family, even though we didn't deserve that. And he wants the church to be this society where, where the nobodies, where the unloved, where the undeserving are, are welcome. That's why hospitality matters. It's not so you can try out your latest recipe. I mean, do try out your, your latest recipe, you know, especially when I come over. Do, do try it out. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's treating people the way Jesus has treated you. It's the welcome of the gospel. So there's prayer, there is loving relationships, but then in the last couple of lines, there is work to do. This church needs building. Verse 10, each one of you should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Now, at first sight, those words seem pretty ordinary fair, don't they, compared to the rest of the passage. On the one hand, you've got this tremendous sort of intense view of the world and the debauchery of the world. And then you've got this very ordinary picture of people serving in church, which I imagine in Peter's context means very similar things to our context. You know, speaking the word to each other, serving which I think means all sorts of things, from stacking chairs to running creches to making tea, cleaning the toilets, visiting the housebound, making meals, all of those kind of things. Why does that counterbalance the debauchery of the world? Why does Peter end with that very ordinary picture? Well, to answer that question, take a step back and bring the two parts of this passage together. In verses 1 to 6, Peter has been rebutting the philosophy that says, one life, live it. Life is short, so play hard. He's saying people live like that because their only horizon is death. But that is not the Christian way. But instead of replacing it with a philosophy that says life is not short because there is eternity, so don't panic. He does something else. He says, no, life is short. Life is even shorter than you might think. Because the tennis ball is in the air. Jesus is going to return. So life is short, but not in the way the pagans think. Life is short because Jesus has risen. And here is a window before the day of judgment, before the day of accountability, to live in a way that really matters. Not so you go and drive a Land Rover around the forest. Although you're free to do that. Sounds great fun. But do something that really counts. What really counts? Not living for self, but for others. Not living for pleasure, but for God. Not living for happiness, but holiness. Not living as if death is a failure, 
but living for glory. And this is why he ends with this lovely, ordinary picture of the freedom we have to be a church family with love, prayer, and service. Because in the last days, what better use of your time do you have? What better use of the energies and gifts that God gives? Even when under pressure from the world, not to try and change that world through waving banners and changing society, but just by doing church and showing a better story that is on offer, a story that actually comes from the resurrection of Jesus and anticipates his return, to choose to adopt the attitude of Christ, to see things clearly. No wonder he concludes with that burst of praise at the end of verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a different view of the world. Thank you that it tells us that this life is short because Jesus is coming. And we only have one life, and it is a life to be lived to the full for your glory. Thank you that this life doesn't end in death, but death is the doorway into eternity, into judgment and accountability and glory, where every costly decision to say no to the world will be rewarded and will lead to the praise and glory of Jesus. Please help us to live in the light of that now, we pray in his name. Amen.